Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England, by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratham Data. Chapter 21, England under Henry V. So, just to just to quickly surmise what happened, Richard II, of course, a bit brash, not very clever, uh, gets um, Henry Bolingbroke out, returns, uh, usurps the throne, calls himself Henry IV, and in general turns out to be a half decent king, even though he was a usurper. But he also leaves a legacy to follow as it turns England into a period of somewhat extraordinary peace. So, here we go. England under Henry V. First part. The Prince of Wales began his reign like a generous and honest man. He set the young Earl of March free, he restored their estates and their honours to the Percy family, who had lost them by the rebellion against his father. He ordered the imbecile and unfortunate Richard to be honourably buried among the kings of England, and he dismissed all his wild companions with assurances that they should not want if they would resolve to be steady, faithful and true. It was much easier to burn men than to burn their opinions, and those of the Lords were spreading every day. The Lollards were represented by the priests, probably falsely for the most part to entertain treasonable designs against the new king, and Henry, suffering himself to be worked upon by these representations, sacrificed his friend Sir John Oldcastle the Lord Cobham, to them after trying in vain to convert him by arguments. He was declared guilty as the head of the sect and sentenced to the flames, but he escaped from the tower before the day of execution, postponed for fifty days by the king himself, and summoned the Lollards to meet him near London on a certain day. So the priest told the king at least, I doubt whether there was any conspiracy beyond such as was got up by their agents. On the day appointed, instead of five and twenty thousand men, under the command of Sir John Oldcastle in the meadows of St Giles, the king found only eighty men and no Sir John at all. There was another place, an addle-headed brewer, who had gold trappings to his horses and a pair of gilt spurs in his breast, expecting to be made a knight next day by Sir John, and so to gain the right to wear them. But there was no Sir John. Nor did anybody give information respecting him, though the king offered great rewards for such intelligence. Thirty of these unfortunate Lollards were hanged and drawn immediately, and then were burnt, gallows and all. And the various prisons in and around London were crammed full of others. 
Some of these unfortunate men made various confessions of the treasonable designs, but such confessions were easily got under torture and the fear of fire, and are very little to be trusted. To finish the sad story of Sir John Oldcastle at once, I may mention that he escaped to Wales and remained there safely for four years. When discovered by Lord Powis, it is very doubtful if he would have been taken alive. So great was the old soldier's bravery if a miserable old woman had not come behind him and broken his legs with a stool. He was carried to London in a horse litter, was fastened by an iron chain to a gibbet, and so roasted to death. To make the state of France as plain as I can in a few words, I should tell you that the Duke of Orléans and the Duke of Burgundy, commonly called John without fear, had a crowd reconciliation of their quarrel in the last reign, and had appeared to be quite in a heavenly state of mind. Immediately after which, on a Sunday in the public streets of Paris, the Duke of Orléans was murdered by a party of 20 men, set on by the Duke of Burgundy, according to his own deliberate confession. The widow of King Richard had been married in France to the eldest son of the Duke of Orléans. The poor mad king was quite powerless to help her, and the Duke of Burgundy became the real master of France. Isabella dying, her husband, Duke of Orleans, since the death of his father, married the daughter of the Count of Armagnac, who, being a much abler man than his young son-in-law, headed his party, thence called after him Armagnacs. Thus, France was now in this terrible condition, that it had in the party of the king's son, the Dauphin Louis, the party of the Duke of Burgundy, who was the father of the Dauphin's ill-used wife, and the party of the Armagnacs, all hating each other, all fighting together, all composed of the most depraved nobles that the earth has ever known, and all tearing unhappy France to pieces. The late king had watched these dissensions from England, sensible, like the French people, that no enemy of France could injure her more than her own nobility. The present king now advanced a claim to the French throne. His demand being, of course, refused, he reduced his proposal to a certain large amount of French territory and to demanding the French princess Catherine in marriage with a fortune of two millions of gold crowns. He was offered less territory and fewer crowns and no princess, but he called his ambassadors home and prepared for war. Then he proposed to take the princess with one million of crowns. The French court replied that he should have the princess with 200,000 crowns less. He said this would not do. He had never even seen the princess in his life, and he assembled his army at Southampton. There was a short plot at home just at that time for deposing him and making the Earl of March king, but the conspirators were all speedily condemned and executed, and the king embarked for France. 
It is dreadful to observe how long a bad example will be followed, but it is encouraging to know that a good example is never thrown away. The king's first act on disembarking at the mouth of the river Seine, three miles from Harfleur, was to imitate his father and to proclaim his solemn orders that the lives and property of the peaceable inhabitants should be respected on pain of death. It is agreed by French writers to his last renown that even while his soldiers were suffering the greatest distress from want of food, these commands were rigidly obeyed. With an army and all of 30,000 men, he besieged the town of Harfleur, both by sea and land for five weeks, at the end of which time the towns rented and the inhabitants were allowed to depart with only five pence each and a part of their clothes. All the rest of their possessions were divided amongst the English army, but the army suffered so much in spite of successes from disease and privation that it was already reduced one half. Still, the king was determined not to retire until he had struck a greater blow. Therefore, against the advice of all his counsellors, he moved on with his little force towards Calais. When he came up to the river Somme, he was unable to cross in consequence of the fort being fortified and, as the English moved up the left bank of the river looking for a crossing, the French who had broken all the bridges, moved up the right bank, watching them and waiting to attack them when they should try to pass it. At last, the English found a crossing and got safely over. The French held a council of war at Rouen, resolved to give the English battle and send heralds to King Henry to know by which way he was going by the road that will take me straight to Calais, said the king, and sent them away with a present of a hundred crowns. The English moved on until they beheld the French, and then the king gave orders to form in line of battle. The French not coming on, the army broke up after remaining in battle array until night and got good rest and refreshment at a neighbouring village. The French were now all lying in another village through which they knew the English must pass. They were resolved that the English should begin the battle. The English had no means of retreat if their king had such intention and so the two armies passed the night close together. To understand these armies well, you must bear in mind that the immense French army had among its notable persons almost the whole of that wicked nobility whose debauchery had made France a desert, and so besotted were they by pride and by contempt for the common people that they had scarcely any bowmen, if indeed they had any at all in their whole enormous number, which compared with the English army was at least as six to one. For these proud fools had said that the bow was not a fit weapon for knightly hands and that France must be defended by gentlemen only. We shall see presently what hand the gentlemen made of it.
Now, on the English side, among the little force, there was a good proportion of men who were not gentlemen by any means and who were good stout archers for all that. Among them, in the morning, having slept little at night, while the French were carousing and making sure of victory, the king rode on a grey horse, wearing on his head a helmet of shining steel, surmounted by a crown of gold, sparkling with precious stones, and bearing over his armour embroidered together the arms of England and the arms of France. The archers looked at the shining helmet and the crown of gold, the sparkling jewels, and admired them all. But what they admired most was the king's cheerful face and his bright blue eye, as he told them that, for himself, he had made up his mind to conquer there, or to die there, and that England should never have a ransom to pay for him. There was one brave knight who chanced to say that he wished some of the many gallant gentlemen and good soldiers who were then idle at home in England were there to increase their numbers. But the king told him that, for his part, he did not wish for one more man. The fewer we have, said he, the greater will be the honour we shall win. His men being now all in good heart, were refreshed with bread and wine, and heard prayers, and waited quietly for the French. The king waited for the French, because they were drawn up thirty deep. The little English force was only three deep, on very difficult and heavy ground, and he knew that when they moved, there must be confusion among them. As they did not move, he sent off two parties, one to lie concealed in a wood on the left of the French, the other to set fire to some houses behind the French after the battle should be begun. This was scarcely done when three of the proud French gentlemen, who were called to defend their country without any help from the base peasants, came riding out, calling upon the English to surrender. The king warned these gentlemen himself to retire with all speed if they cared for their lives, and ordered the English banners to advance. Upon that, Sir Thomas Erpingham, a great English general who commanded the archers, threw his truncheon in the air, joyfully, and all the English men kneeling down upon the ground and biting it as if they took possession of the country, rose up with a great shout and fell upon the French. Every archer was furnished with a great stake tipped with iron, and his orders were to thrust the stake into the crowns, to discharge his arrow, and then to fall back where the French horsemen came on. As the haughty French gentlemen, who were to break the English archers and utterly destroy them with their knightly lances, came riding up, they were received with such a blinding storm of arrows that they broke and turned. Horses and men rolled over one another, and the confusion was terrific. Those who rallied and charged the archers got among the stakes and slippery and boggy ground, and were so bewildered that the English archers, who wore no armour, and even took off their leathern coats to be more active, cut them to pieces, root and branch. 
only three French horsemen got within the stakes and those were instantly dispatched. All this time, the dense French army, being in armour, were sinking knee-deep into the mire, while the light English archers, half-naked, were as fresh and active as if they were fighting on a marble flow. But now, the second division of the French, coming to the relief of the first, closed up in a firm mass. The English, headed by the king, attacked them, and the deadliest part of the battle began. The king's brother, the Duke of Clarence, was struck down, and members of the French surrounded him, but King Henry, standing over the body, fought like a lion until they were beaten off. Presently came a band of 18 French knights, bearing the banner of a certain French lord who had sworn to kill or take the English king. One of them struck him such a blow with a battle axe that he reeled and fell upon his knees, but his faithful men, immediately closing round him, killed every one of those 18 knights, and that French lord never kept his oath. The French Duke of Alençon, seeing this, made a desperate charge and cut his way close up to the royal standard of England. He beat down the Duke of York, who was standing near it, but when the king came to his rescue, struck off a piece of the crown he wore. But he never struck another blow in this world, for even as he was in the act of saying who he was, and that he surrendered to the king, and even as the king stretched out his hand to give him a safe and honourable acceptance of the offer, he fell dead, pierced by innumerable wounds. The death of this nobleman decided the battle. The third division of the French army, which had never struck a blow yet, and which was, in itself, more than double the whole English power, broke and fled. At this time of the fight, the English, who as yet had made no prisoners, began to take them in immense numbers, and were still occupied in doing so, or in killing those who would not surrender, when a great noise arose in the rear of the French. Their flying banners were seen to stop, and King Henry, supposing a great reinforcement to have arrived, gave orders that all the prisoners should be put to death. As soon, however, it was found that the noise was only occasioned by a body of plundering peasants, the terrible massacre was stopped. Then King Henry called to him the French herald and asked him to whom the victory belonged. The herald replied, to the King of England. We have not made this havoc and slaughter, said the King. It is the wrath of heaven on the sins of France. What is the name of that castle yonder? The herald answered him, My lord, it is the castle of Azincourt, said the King. From henceforth this battle shall be known to posterity by the name of the Battle of Azincourt. Our English historians have made it Agincourt, but under that name it will ever be famous in English annals. The loss upon the French side was enormous. Three dukes were killed, 
Two more were taken prisoners, seven counts were killed, three more were taken prisoners, and 10,000 knights and gentlemen were slain upon the fields. The English loss amounted to 1,600 men, among whom the Duke of York and the Earl of Suffolk. War is a dreadful thing. And it is appalling to know how the English were obliged next morning to kill those prisoners mortally wounded who yet writhed in agony upon the ground. How the dead upon the French side were stripped by their own countrymen and countrywomen and afterwards buried in great pits. How the dead upon the English side were piled up in a great barn and how their bodies in the barn were all burned together. It is in such things, and many more much too horrible to relate, that the real desolation and wickedness of war consists. Nothing can make war otherwise than horrible. But the dark side of it was little thought of and soon forgotten and it cast no shade of trouble on the English people, except on those who had lost friends or relations in the fight. They welcomed their king home with shouts of rejoicing, and plunged into the water to bear him ashore on their shoulders, and flocked out in crowds to welcome him in every town through which he passed, and hung rich carpets and tapestries out of the windows, and strewed the streets with flowers and made the fountains run with wine as the great field of Agincourt had run with blood. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.